Well, let's begin our reading this morning in Revelation chapter 19. And we'll read verses 6 through 9 to begin this morning. Revelation chapter 19. And we'll read verses 6 through 8. Revelation chapter 19 and beginning at verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. It sounds like heaven's going to be a noisy place. And for so when we take time to praise the Lord, uh, there are some times when people feel uncomfortable, especially if they're not used to that. Uh, but here we see that in heaven, that that's going to be very commonplace, just the praise of the one who laid down his life for us. And then verse 7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints." Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. So there's a lot in this little passage, these few verses here that we need to take in. Beginning this morning, and probably carrying on until next, next Sunday, I'm going to finish up my, my series of lessons that I've been given on the essential doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why do we believe what we believe? And what is our message to the world? What, what is our mission to the world? Why does the church exist? Why, why did Jesus save us and leave us here and not take us immediately to heaven? And so as we've had this series of lessons studying these, these essential doctrines, we now come to the end of that and what I believe is the pinnacle doctrine to which all these other doctrines that we've studied, they, they have pointed to. And without those other building blocks, and this is kind of how you need to think of doctrine, every doctrine, starting with salvation. How do you get saved? How do you become a part of the church? Through faith in Jesus Christ, faith in him and him alone. It's not by your works. You don't earn salvation. You don't maintain salvation. It's a free gift, the grace of God, saved by grace through faith. One of the doctrines that we've started out with. And then on that solid foundation, we begin to build. How, how do we conduct ourselves as Christians in this life, in every relationship in life? And so as we studied each of those doctrines, it's kind of like building blocks, kind of like building a pyramid. And each block, each doctrine matters, it's, and it's important. And without all of those other blocks, you'll never get to the pinnacle which is the doctrine that we're going to consider, begin to consider this morning, and that we've mentioned as we began to consider the doctrine of rewards, which we know to be different than salvation, saved apart from works, but in that same passage where we're saved by grace through faith, we're also taught that we are saved unto good works, that God has preordained that we should walk in them. And so there are works that we are to do, that are for his glory. And the motivation is what? Well, if we don't do what we're supposed to, God's going to strike us. No, because we love him. We love the one who first loved us. That's our motive for serving him. But then his grace goes beyond that and says, and if you're faithful to do what I've asked you to do as my child, you're always my child 
There are disobedient children. There are rebellious children. But if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, you're his child forever. That's eternal life. If you could lose it, it wouldn't be eternal. The free gift is eternal life. But if we will serve him as his children, he has promised to reward us over and above that, that inheritance of eternal life and a home in heaven. And so how we live our life as Christians matters. And we have studied throughout this series that there are different degrees of reward. And we've also found, as we began to consider rewards, that rewards are not so much things that are offered us, but a place in eternity close to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a position close to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we read here in Revelation, we see that that position is the Lamb's wife, to be the eternal partner of God. And sometimes men have trouble with that concept. Well, I don't want to be the bride of Christ. It has nothing to do with what, how we think of that relationship. It, the emphasis of that, that analogy of, of the bride and the bridegroom is that jointness, that fellowship, that deep relationship that is deeper than any other relationship. It has to do with sharing with all that Jesus is and all that he has. I want that. And more important to know, Jesus wants that for me. That's why he saved me. Not just that I escape hell, but that I might rule and reign with Christ. And so we'll continue to look at the, the scriptural foundation for that. Many, the vast majority of Christians believe that every Christian will make up the bride of Christ. Now, what we'll discover is the offer is made to every child of God, every Christian, every one who accepts Jesus as their Savior is given the opportunity to gain that place next to Christ in eternity. Everyone has a home in heaven that's accepted Jesus. Notice that there are those that are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There are many guests there, so they're in heaven. They have eternal life. But there is a limited one who is given the privilege to adorn herself with the wedding dress, to be the bride of the Lamb, the Lamb's wife. And so what we want to emphasize in this, these last couple of lessons is that every child of God has the opportunity, every Christian has the opportunity to sit in the throne with Jesus Christ as a joint equal heir, and that that's God's will for you. That's what he wants for you. Let's go to Philippians chapter 3, where Paul spells this out. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 16. Now, in this passage, if the subject of Paul's writing here in Philippians 3 and beginning at verse 7, if it's salvation, then the apostle Paul doesn't know whether he's saved or not. He doesn't know whether he's actually going to make heaven, if that's what his subject is. But from reading and comparing all of Paul's writings, the revelation that he received from the Lord Jesus Christ for this church age, we understand that Paul knows that once you are saved, you are eternally a child of God. So we know that salvation cannot be the subject here. So what is the subject? Well, once again, it has to do with rewards. 
but what specifically is the reward for faithful service to the Lord? Paul tells us here, Philippians 3 and verse 7, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Now remember, the apostle Paul, he had reached the pinnacle of power and authority and education among the Jewish leaders. He had riches, he had power, he had authority as one of the Jewish leaders that had the authority to go and to arrest and beat and even kill Christians. He had all of that. Those were the things that he had gained before he came to know Jesus Christ. But now he says, I count them as loss. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. He doesn't miss them at all. He sees them for what they are. Why did he do all of that? That I may gain Christ. Paul never uses that term concerning salvation, but rewards, as we studied rewards, that is something that is gained, something that is awarded for service. But here he says that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. The only way that we are going to live a life of righteousness as a Christian is by faith in the promises of God. It's his righteousness. It's his life. I can't live the Christian life in my own effort. I know my limitations, but the life of Christ in me has the ability to do what's right in the eyes of God. Always. In fact, that's all that life in me can do. Why does he desire to gain Christ? That I may know him. Did Paul not know Jesus? Yeah, he met him on the road to Damascus, didn't he? When he got saved. But here he says, there's a greater, deeper knowledge that he seeks. A deeper fellowship than what he has enjoyed up to this point in his Christian experience. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Well, what's the power of the resurrection? Not just one day to be raised from the dead, but the power of the resurrection is to defeat sin and all of its consequences. I can live a victorious life over sin. I don't have to give in to sin's temptation because I have the life of Christ in me. But I have to learn to yield to that and the fellowship of his sufferings and being conformed to his death. Well, how, how can I be conformed to the death of Jesus Christ? I, I doubt I'll ever be hung on a cross. Maybe, but I, I doubt it. What took Jesus to the cross? The love of his father and what his father willed. It was his father's will that took him to the cross. And so for me to be conformed to the death of Jesus is to have that same unconditional surrender to the will of God, being conformed to his death. If by any means I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, in, in the Greek, many of you are aware that this is the first time that Paul ever uses this phrase. It literally means a resurrection out from among the dead. Now, Paul already knows he is going to be a part of the resurrection to life. He has eternal life. He's saved. He knows that. But there is an out-resurrection from among the living dead. 
from among God's people, an out-resurrection. Verse 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Notice that Paul says, Jesus already has a hold on me. And what did Jesus say in, in John? That we are in the hands of God. He and Jesus and the Father are one. We're in the hands of God. We're in Christ, and we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So we already know that Jesus has a hold on us, an eternal hold. But now Paul says, I want to lay hold of that for which Jesus laid hold of me. I want to obtain, I want to gain what Jesus died to give me. Not just eternal life, but to be the eternal partner with the Lord Jesus Christ for eternity. Verse 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the what? The prize, not the gift. Everywhere else, Paul, talking of salvation, says the gift of God. But here he's pressing toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, notice that understanding this doctrine will require that the individual mature spiritually to know more and more of the will of God. So many of God's people are just satisfied knowing they're saved and going to heaven. And you know, if that's all I knew, that'd be enough for me to praise the Lord through eternity. But that's just the beginning. Your salvation, your eternal life is just the beginning. And as you study the Bible, as you learn to walk and live by faith, you begin to grow spiritually. You mature. And as you mature, you'll understand two things. First of all, this place next to Christ in eternity, is available to you. You can gain Christ. But secondly, you'll also know that this place is valuable. It's worth every sacrifice, every investment, every act of service, every act of obedience. That place is worth pressing on, looking forward to that day. Verse 16 well, let's see, I don't think I finished 15. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. So if you're not believing what I'm saying, if you still believe that every Christian is going to be the bride of Christ, and you say, well, brother Doug, that's what I've always believed, and that's why I was already taught, that's fine. All I ask is that you have an open heart. To, to receive and to know everything God wants to show you. That's all I ask. It's not my responsibility to try to convince you or make you feel bad if you don't agree with me. That's not my responsibility. My responsibility is simply to proclaim what I know to be the Word of God. And then it's up to you to search the Scriptures to see if it's so or not. God will reveal even this to you if you have an open heart to receive whatever He has for you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained... Let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. In other words, we may not agree on this yet, everyone, but may we at least walk in the truth in the light that we have, that we might be pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. This doctrine of a favored place, the best place, 
in eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. It, this doctrine is known by a number of different things among those of us who believe it. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the bridal truth. Sometimes it's referred to as the out-resurrection because of what we read there that Paul desired to obtain to that out-resurrection. Some call it full overcomers. I, that's not my preference because it, it has the connotation that you never fail, and we'll, we'll look at uh, the, the uh, Bible teaching on that, that we're not talking about Christians that never fail or never fall short because no Christian exists that fits that description. But there are things that are required. So this is what, in the lessons that we have here, I, I want to consider what's required to gain Christ. What kind of Christian do we need to be? If, if it doesn't mean that we're perfect and never fail, what does it mean? So we want to take time to look at that. Any lesson that is based on, on the Bible, any doctrine that you hear, Technically, it is bridal truth. The Apostle Paul, he doesn't actually use the word bride. He uses the marriage analogy, but he never uses the word bride. And he taught bridal truth. But he used other analogies. He used that of a victorious athlete, of an obedient soldier, of a patient farmer. And all of those things refer to the, to the same position that we're talking about gaining Christ, having God's best in eternity. Sometimes when we, when we talk about this, this work and, and being found worthy to put on the wedding dress, to be the bride of Christ, some people think, well, oh, that's for old people. That's for Brother Doug. He's lost his hair and everything else, and so that's all he's got to do is try to win Christ. No. My desire and my journey... My beginning to press on started when I was a teenager, when I just became overwhelmed that Jesus loved me enough to die for me on the cross. That's where my journey started, pressing on. Oh, I was saved when I was five, but it wasn't until I matured a little bit, not only physically but spiritually, to understand that Jesus died that I might sit in the throne with him. And I've been on this road a long time. But that doesn't mean those that are saved later in life don't have the same opportunity. Because when did Paul start his journey to gain Christ? It wasn't until he was an adult. It wasn't until after he had been a blasphemer for most of his life. Jesus saved him. Paul was the enemy of Jesus, and Jesus loved him anyway. It doesn't matter when you're saved or how long you've been saved. If from today it's your desire to be everything God wants you to be, this position of winning Christ is offered to you doesn't matter how bad a sinner you were. If you were a sinner all your life and, and now you got saved and, and, well, you know, I've already lost my opportunity. No. The grace of God gives you opportunity to win Christ if you will surrender your will to the will of God today and look every day to him to give you that strength. Let's go to 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 1 through 8. We'll consider... Paul's summary of his own life, of his own Christian walk, as a summary of the requirements to win the highest place in glory. Remember, every Christian will have a home in heaven, eternal life. There will be guests at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and they will be blessed. We read that, didn't we? They're blessed. They're happy to be there. But the one bride 
the one wife, represents those Christians. And in the book of Revelation, there's, it's not just, these numbers don't represent just those specific numbers. They're, they're symbolic numbers. So it's one bride, but just like there's one body of Christ, but many members, the same is true of, of the wife, the lamb's wife. Just one, but she's made up of the members of the body of Christ that have faithfully served and honored the Lord Jesus Christ in this life. Just like when God made a wife for Adam, God didn't take the whole body and remake another body. Took a rib portion, didn't he? Just the rib. It was all that was necessary to the side, to be alongside Adam. The same is true with the second Adam and his wife. Second Timothy 4, 1 through 8. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. That's what I've tried to do with this series of lessons on sound doctrine, on essential doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. God's people don't want to hear these basic gospel truths anymore, many of them. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They'll go where they'll hear what they want to hear, not what God wants them to hear, but what they want to hear. That certainly characterizes the church today, doesn't it? And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, Paul said, and the time of my departure is at hand. God had revealed to Paul that he was about to be martyred. His head was to be removed from his body because he preached Christ. And so he uses this analogy. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. In the Old Testament, they would pour out a drink offering, symbolizing that I pour everything I am out for the service and the pleasure of God. And I leave nothing in my cup for me. I pour it out. Paul says he was about to do that. He was going to pay the ultimate price. Verse 7 is what we want to, and we'll have to leave with this this morning, but if you want to know what's required to win Christ, to gain that highest place in glory, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. We'll look at that, see what that means, and clearly I'm going to take more than two lessons, it looks like. But I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Every child of God is the righteousness of God in Christ. We've all been clothed with the robe of the righteousness of Christ to make us acceptable before God. But this is the crown of righteousness. This is the pinnacle of this salvation that we've been given. A crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. Well, he's the Apostle Paul, and, and uh, of course, he's going to have God's best. But that's just for him, surely. But Paul says, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. These three things. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is what's necessary to gain Christ. 
And what's, what's your motivation to do those things? Well, because the preacher said so, or because the preacher's watching, or those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your motivation. That's the only way you're going to live the Christian life. If you try to live it by gritting your teeth and trying to be the best that you can be, you're going to fail miserably. And you'll be miserable, and you'll make everyone around you miserable. But if you love Jesus, it doesn't matter who's around you. It doesn't matter what situation or circumstance you're in. You know that Jesus never leaves you nor forsakes you. And you always want to please him because you love him because he first loved you. Lord willing, in the next several lessons, we'll continue to to see how do we fight the good fight? How do we run the race and finish it with joy? How do we keep, guard the faith? We'll stop there this morning. Let's have a song in closing. Let's stand as we sing.